Good morning and welcome. Welcome to Hope Community Church. I'm Trevor Kill, the pastor here. I'm glad you could be with us uh, this morning. Um, and I am grateful for it being Veterans Day weekend. Uh, this is an opportunity for our, our nation to thank those who have served. And uh, speaking of that, if you know a vet, take them out to a meal tomorrow on Veterans Day, either for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Um, treat them to a meal. Uh, just take them to a place where they get a free meal, and then you're only paying for your meal. Um, I am open for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, three different places. I'm willing to give up my time to uh, pastor you during that time. But also with vets, just even around these holidays, whether it's Veterans Day, Memorial Day, Armed Services Day, um, even July 4th, um, always pray for them. These days can be days that trigger them, that can lead to increased depression, suicidal thoughts. Uh, sometimes they don't want to talk, and let's not make them talk. But at the very least, we could pray, pray for them, with them, and offer our love and our company if they so desire it. Um, so please keep them in your prayers. Before we begin this morning, let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace for another Sunday. Another day where we can stand together as one body to praise and worship your name, the work of your Son, and the power and the truth of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Help us hear your word this morning. Help us submit ourselves to your teaching that we may respond appropriately, that you will give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of your word, the infallibility of your word, the sufficiency and the authority of it. And be with the veterans, Father, across this country. Be with those who have sacrificed so much and now live in a land where their neighbors have no idea. Comfort them, Father, and help us, the church, come alongside them to pray for them, to minister to them, to be a friend, and help them carry their burdens, if at all possible, Father. And we ask that you will show them the peace of the gospel that exists, that allows them to see through the suffering and the darkness of this world and that you will heal their hearts, that you, through your word and in your truth, will point them to the end of age where the new heaven and the new earth will be, and your son, Jesus Christ, will wipe away every tear. We ask these things, Father, for your glory, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So last week, we spoke about uh, the single action of Mary anointing the body of Christ with the very expensive perfume that she used on Jesus and how that is an example for us to live faithfully and sacrificially. Today we're going to be, uh, we continue our journey in Matthew 26, and we're going to be in verses 17 through 46. And our passage today contains some significant moments of the final moments of the life of Jesus, and perhaps none more than the Lord's Supper in the middle of our passage. But our, our focus this morning is not the Lord's Supper. It's not communion, um, at least not in isolation. I, I do plan on preaching fully on the Lord's Supper at some point, uh, hopefully in the near future, but that is not this morning. Uh, rather, today we are going to see how Jesus was fully aware of all the details of his of surrounding his crucifixion, his betrayal, all of his details in his final hours, but yet he still loves. And that though he was with his disciples, those closest to him, he was still very much alone. And though he was anguished over the situation, he still loves. So if you will, if you haven't already, 
Open up to Matthew 26, 17, 46, either on your app or on your Bible. If you need a Bible, we do have Bibles underneath the seats um, scattered throughout. And we will read uh, the whole passage uh, this morning. Now, on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My time is near. I will observe the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had instructed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he took his place at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They became greatly distressed, and each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. He answered, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for him if he had never been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus replied, You have said it yourself. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And after taking the cup and giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood, the blood of the covenant that is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing to him, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, This night you will all fall away because of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter said to him, If they fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, on this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. And Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and became anguished and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved, even to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going to the Lord Father, he threw himself down with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me, not what I will, but what you will. When he, then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, So you couldn't stay awake with me for one hour. Stay awake and pray that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it. Your will must be done. He came again and found them sleeping. They could not keep their eyes open. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is approaching, and the Son of Man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. Look, my betrayer is approaching. So it's the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, probably Wednesday or, or Thursday evening, depending on which day, you, day of the week you date the crucifixion. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, per Leviticus 23, 4, 6, starts the day after Passover. 
But over time, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread kind of merged into one whole week, one whole week of celebration. And oftentimes the uh, names would be interchanged for Passover week or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So on this evening, Jesus prepares everything. He acknowledges his time is near, and as such, he prepares for it. Remember last week when we talked about how the chief priests were planning on arresting Jesus after Passover, after the week ended? Well, Jesus, he has other plans, at least the Father has other plans, which Jesus is aware of, and as such, Jesus is preparing for those plans to be fulfilled. So he gives specific instructions to his disciples on how, who, where to observe the Passover. And if you read Luke's account in Luke 22, Luke gives us more details, more specifics that Jesus gave his disciples on exactly who to go to and and where to do this and and how all this works out. And the details show us Jesus, one, he's, he's able to see, he's able to know who to go to. He has this omniscient knowledge and he's, he's aware, he's in control of this situation. But it wasn't only the logistics of the Last Supper that Jesus was aware of. But he was aware of why it would be his Last Supper. And once everyone is reclined at the table, lying there on the floor, their feet are furthest away from the table and their heads closest to the table, they're not sitting in chairs, they're reclining around a table, Jesus takes his place and he lets everyone know of the pending betrayal. And this causes concern, distress for the disciples. They all think it's themselves, right? No one here suspects it to be Judas, and we wouldn't suspect it to be Judas either if Matthew didn't tell us and if we didn't know the story. But the disciples are not all looking at Judas like, I bet it's him. No, they all think it's themselves. So they have no idea it's Judas. But Jesus knows exactly who it is. And he's aware of their distress, and so he, he states it again, but this time he references Psalm 41.9, where Psalm 41.9 says, Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared meals with me, has turned against me. See, Jesus here speaking, he's not saying that the one who just dipped the bread, he's the one. He's not saying that. That's not what's going on here. What he's saying is, a very close friend of mine, one of you, one of the twelve, incredibly close, one who I share meals with, That is whom will betray me. That is who will betray me. So this general statement intensifies what Judas is about to do. Judas isn't some outcast of the twelve. He's not some black sheep that they neglected and, well, of course he's going to betray Jesus because he was never involved in it. No, he was a close friend of Jesus. Jesus even goes on to say that it is necessary for this to happen. Jesus is aware of it. He's like, this is necessary but woe to the one through whom it happens through. Matthew 26, 24, listen again. Son of man will go as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is portrayed. It would be better for him if he had never been born. Never been born. Think about the consequence that is awaiting Judas. This language here gives us an idea of the eternal destination of Judas. If Judas were, were to be, end up in the kingdom, well then, it's, it's good thing he was born, right? But no, it's better that he, what, it would be better that he wasn't born. And it speaks against those who might hold to an annihilationist point of view that believes the punishment of hell is limited in time. 
And at the end of the time, after they've suffered for how, how long they've ever suffered based off of their sins, they just cease to exist. Or some annihilationists believe that um, once you die and you're judged, and you're not considered worthy or you're not in the book of life, you just cease to exist. But the thing is, there can't be no punishment if there's no one to do the punishment on. Thus, the punishment stops existing. And when one ceases to exist, it is like they were never born. You're in the same state as you were before you were born. You did not exist. So this statement here shows us you're always going to exist, and Judas will always exist in a state that he wished that he was never born. Yet despite this, and Jesus, and despite Jesus affirming privately to Judas that he is indeed a traitor, Judas still does it. Judas still portrays Jesus. But by Jesus making this claim and letting Judas know that he knows it's him, Jesus is showing, I know what you're up to. I'm not surprised by this, and it's not going to happen against my will. But go and do what you've been planning to do. This shows his willingness to go along with it. But this isn't the only thing that Jesus is aware of in our passage. Though Jesus will be handed over to the authorities by the kiss of a close friend, the other 11 close friends of his, the 11 disciples, all of them will deny him this night. And they will scatter from having any kind of association with him. And Jesus references uh, the middle part of Zechariah 13.7. And he does this not as a reference for prophecy, because the context of Zechariah here is the shepherd is, is an evil king, is an evil leader. Um, and God will strike the shepherd to judge the king and to judge the people. Rather, Jesus is referencing Zechariah 13.7 about the point that when the shepherd is struck, it's natural for the sheep to scatter. And Jesus being the shepherd, he will be struck that night and his sheep will scatter. And he gets real specific when Peter, being as stubborn as he always is, denies that this is going to happen. He says, no, Peter, you, of all the twelve, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. And of course, Peter denies this. And all the other, along with him, deny him. No, absolutely not. We will take, we will die before we deny you. But as we all know, and if you don't, just read on in the Gospel of Matthew after the service, they all do scatter. And Peter does deny Jesus three times. After this, they go to the Mount of Olives and they go to uh, Gethsemane and at the garden. For Jesus, knowing the hour to be at hand, he needs to pray. And he needs to pray, for he is fully aware of what awaits him. He knows what the Father is asking of him. And we'll talk more about this later. And though he is aware of all this going on, this awareness is what in part helps him or aids him in feeling alone. Though he is never alone, he is very much alone. See, Jesus prepares his Passover meal to have with his disciples, but not just any of his disciples. He had more disciples than just the 12, right? He had the the 12, he had the 70, an act where there was like 120 of them. So he had more than just the 12, but the 12 were the close group for him, right? We have the 12 and we have the three, which are part of the 12. We'll talk about the three in a moment. But these are the 12 that have been with him from the beginning. The 12 that woke him from his peaceful sleep that night during the windstorm on the lake when they were fearful for their death. The 12 that saw Jesus feed thousands with meager portions. The 12 that have seen Jesus walk on water and saw 
Peter do it for a brief moment. The twelve that went out, exercised demons, healed the sick, caused the lame to walk in the name of Jesus. And the twelve that have heard Jesus teach eloquently and authoritatively, as well as hearing him rebuke and correct the top teachers and religious leaders of the day. The twelve that have slept with him, ate with him, walked with him, prayed with him, suffered the cold winters with him, and the hot summers. These are the twelve whom Jesus wants to spend his final night with. Yet despite all this, imagine how alone he felt. For though he shares with them that one of his closest, one of the twelve, will betray them, he also says, you all will deny me. But yet he still gathers with them. And why does he do that? Think about it. If we were in that situation, dining with our close friends, but we knew that our darkest hours among, among us, and that when that dark hour arose, our friends would not be there. How would we feel about dining with them and, 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 and having fellowship with them and, and loving them? I think that would be a very hard thing to do, but yet Jesus does exactly this. And perhaps this is how we feel at church at times, or all the time, and, and perhaps this is why you rarely come to church, because you feel alone. This room is full, but you're not connected. You don't feel supported. You don't feel loved. Let this be an encouragement, an example to you. Jesus endured loneliness that night and still loved those whom God gave him to love. It can be a hard thing, even within the church, to feel connected and to be accepted. It's rarely as easy as we think it ought to be and how it should be. But it's not, it is not the reason to not belong to one. Do not use that as an excuse not to partake. Imagine if Jesus said to the Father, I'm not going to do it. I know what they're going to do. I know how they're going to deny me. I'm not going to have Passover with these people. So let's be like Jesus. Let's engage in fellowship even when we feel alone. Perhaps the place that Jesus experiences loneliness the most, though, is at the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes there with his disciples. But then he takes his closest of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. Peter and the James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the, the, the uh, sons of thunder, right? The guys that want to call down fire from above on the city. The, the three that saw the transfiguration happened, and they saw Moses and Elijah, and Peter was bumbling out of his mouth about building booths for tents for uh, the three, except for himself. He, just, he invites these three to come along with him, and he expresses to these three his emotions and how he is feeling. Jesus here, the Son of God, he's deeply grieved, even to the point of death. Now, this isn't that Jesus is suicidal, all right, that's not what's being said here. It wasn't that Ju Jesus was suicidal, but the sorrow he is feeling, it's incredible. I, I mean, sorrowful to the point of death. I don't know if we can understand that unless you have felt that yourself, but this is what Jesus is feeling, and he makes a simple request. He just says, stay here and stay awake with me. He's not going to talk their ear off, right? And we know how that is sometimes in some People all emotionally want to talk. Listening to people can be an exhausting thing. But Jesus isn't going to be doing this for the disciples. He's just saying, stay here. Stay awake. Just this one night. Imagine your closest friend making a similar request. He's exposed his deepest, deepest emotional pain that he's ever had in his life to you. And all he wants you to do is stay awake. Stay here with me and stay awake. 
Yet when Jesus goes and prays to the Father and he comes back, what does he find? All three of them are sleeping. And Jesus rebukes them and he encourages them. The one that needed encouragement is encouraging those he's looking for encouragement from. Yet again, and so he, he, he encourages them, he corrects them, he goes off, prays again. When he comes back, they're asleep again. Tells them, hey, you know, you need to pray. The flesh is weak, spirit is willing. You have to pray. He goes away. Because it seems, he's constantly going to prayer, because it seems in this dark hour, there's only one person, one God that he can go to in this time of darkness. He feels absolutely alone. He has his close friends. His closest friends of his life are with him. But yet the only person he feels like he can go to this time is God the Father. He goes to the Father three times. And the final time when he comes back to them, again, they are sleeping. They had three opportunities. And now they are sleeping. Once again, Jesus wakes them and said, look, the moment has come. And now his betrayer is approaching, and now Jesus will truly be alone. Being fully aware of all that is happening and is about to happen, while at the same time lacking the encouragement and fellowship one might need in such a dark hour, we shouldn't be surprised, it should be easy for us to understand why Jesus would be so emotionally troubled in this moment, why he would be so anguished on this night. See, Jesus has always been aware of the cost the Father has asked him to make. This is not a surprise. So whole, ever since Jesus started his ministry, he's been preaching the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom is upon the people. The Son of Man is here, and he's talked about how the Son of Man has to be portrayed, has to be handed over, and how he has to die and has to rise three days later. But though now that the hour, the actual hour is near, the weight of the task, is brought to bear in its fullness. It's in this moment, Jesus has his disciples. He instructs them to prepare the Passover meal and to have fellowship with the one whom this weight will be brought. He's had to tell his disciples, those dear to him, that they would deny him. He's had to see the look on their faces as they are distressed at the fact that he would think that they would deny him. As they have felt the emotion of being accused of something they so confidently denied. We shouldn't be surprised that the Son of God experiences such emotion. Rather, we should be encouraged by this. Because though Jesus is fully God as the Son of God, he is fully human. He's been tempted in every respect, as you and I have, but yet without sin. If we are to be surprised by anything, it's the fact that the Son of God was obedient to the Father to take on human flesh, to live sinless in a sinful, dark world until he died on the cross, publicly, in humiliation. Of course, we, we know the rest of it, the good news of it, that he rose again to give glory to the Father. That's what should be surprising, is that a holy, infinite God would send his Son to do that for us. Therefore, Jesus, becoming sorrowful, distressed, troubled, we shouldn't be surprised. Because after all, he is human, though he is God. And because he is emotionally distressed, he goes to his Father. And that is a model for all of us. He goes to the Father and he asks the Father, 
Father, let this cup pass, if, if, if at all possible. But ultimately, that the Father's will will be done. Now think about that for a moment. Jesus says, if possible. The thing if it was, Jesus, Son of God, saying, Father, if there's any other way to redeem your people, to restore that relationship with you, any other way. This is the Son of God, the second person of Trinity, asking the Father, the first person of Trinity, Hey, if there's any other way we can restore the relationship with, with our people, let's, let's do it. But there isn't. There is no other way. Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. There's no other way for us to be redeemed, and this should put our sin into perspective and his holiness in perspective. What God calls sin is no small thing, regardless of, of the sin. We often shrug our shoulders sometimes at things or sometimes laugh at small sins. Right? Little lies, just little things, taking the Lord's name in vain, whether it's in jokes, whatever. We, we fail to remember that for that small sin, Jesus had to endure the cross. Like, he didn't die on the cross for just the great sins, he died on the cross for all of those sins. All of the sins. The thought that, you're having this, that you had this morning waking up that was evil or lustful. Jesus died for that. There was no other way for you to be redeemed from that little sin but by the blood of the Son of God and Jesus Christ. And when we speak of the awareness of Jesus, he endured the cross, the whipping, the beating, the crucifixion, the humiliation, all of it, knowing how little you and I at times would make his sacrifice to be. When you minimize sin, you minimize the cross. When you minimize sin, you minimize the work of Christ, the gospel. This is why understanding the holiness of God is so important, how we understand this, our sin and who we are and how depraved we are and our need for Christ. This is what makes the good news so good. The gospel becomes more joyful and more joyous when, when you recognize how sinful you are and, and just how significant even the tiniest sin is tiniest transgression is against a holy God. So Jesus goes back to the disciples after the first time of praying, perhaps for encouragement, or maybe it was just ultimately to encourage them. We don't know. But he finds them sleeping in this hour of desperation. He corrects them, tells them to pray for the flesh is weak. Something Jesus probably at this moment, being fully human, is probably feeling in such intensity I think no other human being could imagine because he's lived his entire life without sinning. And now he's going to die the death of a sinner before a holy God. He recognized that he himself is holy, and he's like, I'm going to the cross. His humanity is wrestling with that. This is why he goes back to pray again. This is why we, especially if the Son of God needs to go to the Father in time of temptation, how much more do we, born of man, not of spirit, need to go to the Father when we are tempted, and we need to go back to him again and again and again, even when other people who we expect to encourage us to keep us accountable, even when they abandon us or they're sleeping on the job, we need to go to the Father, just as Jesus has gone to the Father. And he prays the same prayer to the Father again. Is there any other way? He goes back once again, Peter, James, John, are asleep. Quietly goes back to pray a third time, asking the same thing. Father, any other way? But this is how it is. I will drink of this cup. And this time when he returns, he calls them out on their sleeping. And at this moment, 
the opportunity for the disciples to do anything positive is gone. It's over. Judas is coming. He's approaching the Son of Man with a kiss of betrayal. When we look at his anguish, we would be wise to contemplate how willing are we to share in his suffering for his name. How willing are we to be rejected by others for his sake? Thomas Akempis says it well. When Christ was in the world, he was despised by, by men. In the hour of need, he was forsaken by acquaintances and left by friends to the depths of scorn. He was willing to suffer and to be despised. Do you dare to complain of anything? He had enemies and defamers. Do you want everyone to be your friend, your benefactor? How can your patience be rewarded if no adversity tests it? How can you be a friend of Christ if you are not willing to suffer any hardship? Suffer with Christ and for Christ if you wish to reign with him. If we are honest, we are weak, we are cowards, we are selfish. More times than we ought to be, just like the disciples. And Jesus knows this about us. He knew this about us. Yet, yet he loves. Despite all this, despite knowing and being in full control of the situation and entering into his crucifixion, he does so willingly, not by accident, not by mistake, especially not against his will. Despite being betrayed and knowing the disciples would deny him, despite the disciples not being able to stay awake just for one night with him, when we look at Jesus during this hour of desperation, we must look at the beginning of the night to the Passover meal. We have to look at communion. We have to look at the Lord's Supper because it ties us all together. Jesus entered into this time of fellowship fully aware of those whom he's sharing his table with would deny him and fully aware of what lied ahead, but yet he broke bread and he drank with them. And not just any bread and any wine. Let's go ahead and read that passage again, verses 26 through 30. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And after taking the cup and giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood, the blood of the covenant, that is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So Jesus gave thanks, he broke bread, said, Eat, this is my body. Not that the body was literally, not that the bread, excuse me, was literally his body, but it represented his body. And the breaking of it points us to the suffering on the cross. There's no reason here to think that the text here um, or in the other Gospels that Jesus viewed the bread literally as his body. Uh, this is the idea of transubstantiation, that the elements miraculously um, actually become literal flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. We don't have that in Scripture. Uh, John 6 is the only place where Jesus makes mention of eating flesh and drinking of his blood. But even in that context, there's no mention of, of communion or, or any connection there. Plus, we have many examples in the Bible that talk like this. Genesis 4, 41, 26, the seven good cows of seven years. Daniel 2, 38, you are that head of gold, but the head wasn't really gold. Uh, Matthew 13, 38, Jesus himself, the field is the world. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 4, that rock was Christ. Christ wasn't really a rock. It's, it's 
It's a, it's a metaphor. Or Jesus, in, Revela- uh, in Revelation 1.20, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Churches aren't actually lampstands. And then Jesus, in 10.7, I am the gate for the sheep. Jesus isn't a literal gate. He's a figurative gate. Or again, John 15.1, I am the true vine. Jesus isn't an actual plant, right? And we have many other examples in Scripture. So the, the bread and, and, the, and the cup, they represent his body and his blood. Now Jesus took the cup, he gave thanks, he passed it around to his disciples. Now this cup, it's wine, it's not juice. It represents his blood. And this blood points us to the blood that he shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. But he uses specific language here. And we're not going to get into too much detail here. This would be, say, for the sermon on communion. But it says, blood of the covenant. And this language comes from Exodus 24.8, where it says, Moses took the blood, splashed it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. It was by blood that the old covenant was established, was inaugurated. And now the blood of Christ will establish the new covenant. The new covenant of Jeremiah 31, 31, 34, where it says, Indeed, a time is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. It will not be like the old covenant that I made with their ancestors when I delivered them from Egypt. For they violated the covenant, even though I was like a faithful husband to them, says the Lord. But I will make a new covenant with the whole nation of Israel after I plant them back in the land, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts and minds. I will be their God, and they will be my people. People will no longer need to teach their neighbors and relatives to know me. For all of them, from the least important to the most important, will know me, says the Lord. For I will forgive their sin and will no longer call to mind the wrong they have done. The cup, the fruit of the vine, which was given... The blood of Christ for forgiveness of our sins, that is what has inaugurated the new covenant. And this is the fruit of the vine. Jesus isn't going to drink again until he comes back in the fullness of the kingdom. See, now the kingdom of God is being inaugurated, and it is inaugurated at the death of Christ on the cross. But it will be consummated fully when he returns and drinks of the wine with his people once again. The reason we do communion is so that we can look backwards towards the redemptive work of Christ, while at the same time looking forward to his return, when we will sit with him in the flesh, in a bodily resurrection, and partake of the wine with him again. Communion is not some small thing that we just do. It's a highly significant practice. Because when we ponder our sins, and we ponder what Christ did for us, it can be easy to think that we have failed him. Imagine Peter, after he's denied Jesus three times, how he felt, how he wept, realizing that Jesus was right. He did deny him three times. After Peter was like, I'm not going to do it. To death, do us apart. But he doesn't. He denies him three times. When we feel that weight, we feel not worthy of his love. But let this be the lesson for all of us today, the lesson that we get from all of this. That no matter what you have done, either before you knew Christ or even after you have come to know Christ, and no matter what happens going forward, Jesus knows. He already knew. Jesus was betrayed. He was denied. 
as we've mentioned, by all of his disciples, by their fleeing, by Peter explicitly three different times, yet he drank the cup of God's wrath for them and for us. And he offers to share, in the, share with us in the grace and joy to be found in the pouring out of his cup, the pouring out of his blood on the cross, the forgiveness for our sins. This is why we do communion, so we can remind ourselves of the gospel and the forgiveness that we have at the feet of Jesus. See, once you're baptized, you're baptized. You get baptized once. You don't get baptized twice or three times or four times. You get baptized once. That's it. After that, we do communion. If you have this idea of being rebaptized because you, you have walked away from the faith and you want to recommit to your life, that's what communion's for. To come back to the table, to come back to that fellowship, to have that communion restored with the Father. That's what communion is meant to signify. You get baptized once to be identified as part of the body of Christ, but after that, we do communion. That's why communion is significant. And that's why I personally believe baptism first and then communion. Because you get identified and then communion reminds us of who we are in Christ and how, he, how what he has done is always there for us. And that forgiveness is always there for us. And we're anticipating his return and his redemptive work is permanent and for all sins. There's no sin that can outdo the grace of God. None. For those who believe in his name. You do not need to practice works. Salvation is not the death of Jesus Christ plus A, B, Y, whatever. It's not plus these works. It's not penance. It's not confession. It's none of those things. Jesus died on the cross for all sins. The Son of God, he's enough. Praise God. We don't need to add more to that. We must not think we need to add more to the work, or that we are that significant that the blood of the Son of God can't cover our sins. So for us today, we have to understand that sin only remains for those who are outside of Christ, for those who refuse to believe, those who refuse to eat of his body and drink of his cup, those who refuse to have communion with him, fellowship with him. You can't have fellowship with him if you don't believe in him. So for the one who commits adultery, by lusting in your heart after another man or woman who is not your spouse, or the one who commits sexual immorality by lusting after another member of the same sex, or the one who loves the taste of alcohol more than you ought to. And to all of us who give ourselves over to the desires of the flesh, whatever they may be, whenever we may do them, I know you all have sinned this morning. There's a very good chance that you've had a thought today that was either selfish uh, self-glorifying, um, committed some form of idolatry, lustful thoughts, driving here, maybe anger at your neighbor. And Jesus died for that sin. On your way to church, that one thought, just that thought, Sermon on the Mount, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. Sermon on the Mount is not about your best life now or how to be a, uh, a, you know, a better person. It's about, hey, you're not, you can't. You can't be perfect like the Father in heaven. Your righteousness neither exceeds that of the Pharisees, and that's not possible. So you have to have faith in Jesus Christ. You have to know the will of the Father. So whenever we give in to the desires of the flesh, we have to understand there is forgiveness. Whether it's the first time that you're being forgiven, or it's the time that you just can't keep track anymore. And you need forgiveness once more. Every breath is another opportunity to enter into right fellowship with the Father by the blood of Christ. Remember Mark 16. 
uh, verses 6 through 7. This is the angel talking to the woman. He said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples, right? The ones that denied him, the ones who fled. Tell these fleeing cowards, but even Peter, even the one who explicitly, he didn't just fled, but he explicitly denied Christ three times. Tell even Peter that he's going ahead of, ahead of you into Galilee, and you will see him there just as he told you. Even Peter, even you, even me. We might smell like manure with the filth of our sins or our perceived righteousness, yet Christ loves us. And that should baffle us. He is there with his arms open, waiting for us to go to him. This is why communion is precious, because that's what we're reminding ourselves. We're going into fellowship that we know his grace is there despite the sins we have committed. And he will show us that once we confess our sins to him, he will show us by his word how to sin no more and how to walk in the light so that you may have fellowship, not just with him, but with the spirit that dwells within us, and not just with the spirit, but with God the Father, whom sent his son to die on that cross for our sins. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your, your mercy and grace. I thank you that these words were written down so that we could be reminded, that we could know of the truth of just how great this grace and this love of your Son is. Forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for our inability to live as we ought to, even though we know we cannot and we have no power to do so apart from you, Father. Help us submit ourselves to your Spirit. Help us deny ourselves daily, continually, so that you may be glorified. Help us never think that we stand on our own two feet. Help us never think that whatever we have done on our own is, is, is righteous or deserving of your love because we are not. And we are sorry that we live in such a way that you had to send your son. That he had to endure what he endured that night and the days to follow. But we thank you for him. And we ask that though, though this good news is good, sometimes it brings us to tears as we weep over our sins and we recognize the condemnation that we so rightly deserve. But we rejoice, Father, because you sent your Son, and in your Son, those of us who we believe in him, there is no condemnation, that we can wipe our tears away and we can live in the light as you've called us to and you've given us instruction and commands on, on how we can stay in right fellowship with you and, and how we can continually repent and go back. Father, help us have this heart, this spirit of obedience and joy and repentance and let us fill our own cups up with that good news that we may share with others. Help us be willing to suffer, to share the sufferings of Christ for the sake of others, for his sake, so that he may be glorified, the gospel may be known, and we can share with those who are in darkness right now, those who are currently under condemnation, that they can know the freedom that exists within Jesus Christ. Help us be your messengers. Help us grow in your word. And when we do celebrate communion going forward and, and when we do think of baptisms and, 
and we, we just think of our forgiveness that is at this table. Let us go so joyfully. Give us that spirit. Let us not just go through the motions, but help us recognize the significance of what it points us to. Not that there's power in there, Father. Help us not make it a means, but a celebration of a reality that already exists and will exist, regardless of our actions, as long as we have faith in your Son. Help us when we doubt, Father. Help us when our faith is weak and little. Help us believe. And we ask all these things, Father, for your glory, by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.